Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Reverend Dan Dunlap. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about me at fiercereadies.com, and I'm also the faith organizer for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. SURGE is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice, so we want to remind folks that this is designed for white people white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. Of course, it would be wonderful for anybody and everybody to listen. This isn't meant to be white-only space. And we would love to hear feedback from folks of color about how we're doing. Nevertheless, we want to be clear that white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy. White people have to resist racism. We have to resist all other forms of systemic injustice that we are invested in and complicit with. The word is resistance. It's good to be with you again. I am for the UCC's General Synod, and although I've been home for almost two weeks, it took a few days to recover from the intensity of those long days surrounded by a few thousand people. We've returned to very hot temperatures, and I don't know about you, but during these long, hot days of summer, I find myself longing for shade, for shadow. We don't have AC in our house, so we are praying every day for clouds like the ones rolling in over the Rocky Mountains to the west right now, so that the harshest sun won't beat down on our little house. We pray a lot for rain this time of year when the risk of wildfires is high. We pray for coolness, for darkness. Sometimes, and as someone who moved to Denver because surviving the long gray winters of the Pacific Northwest got to be too much, I get the irony of of what I'm about to say, but sometimes there is such a thing as too much sun. Sometimes there is such a thing as too much sun. And I mean that elementally, And I mean that metaphorically, too, and so I wonder what we're doing to nourish coolness and shadow and shade for ourselves and each other. How we're handing each other a cool cup of water when the blazing lights of the Empire's violent thrashing collapse are so harsh on our bodies and souls. Have a cool cup of water right now before we go on. Feel the cool water as it moves into your body. Slow down a little, find some shade, and just breathe. 
full cup of water, y'all. I've got water here, and I've been drinking on my herbal tea today that has cooling herbs in it, like peppermint and chickweed. I love chickweed. It's a gorgeous, luscious, juicily nutritious herb. I've never seen her growing here in Denver, but in some places she grows wild all over. She has beautiful, tiny little leaves and star-shaped flowers, hence her Latin name, Stellaria media. She creeps along the ground and her flowers look up to the stars. I said her name was Chickweed. Some people say she's a weed. Weed as in unwanted. I've said before I'm an herbalist, so anymore I raise an eyebrow when people talk about weeds as unwanted, invasive, toxic plants to be torn out, poisoned, or dug up. Dandelions, red clover, nettles, chickweed, yellow dock, burdock. I mean, if you ever want to get me going, tell me you're going to poison your dandelions, because I'm telling you dandelions will save us all in the end, if there ever was an herb of resistance. You see where I'm going here? Matthew's parable put in Jesus' mouth about the weeds and the wheat. Weeds and wheat. Herbalists know. Weeds are just plants that refuse to grow into rows. So I'm already reading this parable with the raised eyebrow of suspicion. The herbalist in me, though, really wants to dig in the weeds. I really, really do. And I did do some reading about the weeds, actually. There are interesting articles out there about what exactly this weed is and why it would have been a problem. Here's a tip. Yes, it's medicinal in small doses, but it can carry a fungus that can make you really sick and also ruin your crop and kill your livestock. So, hmm. But everybody wants to know about the weeds. If you Google it, you'll see. Good seed, bad seed, weeds and wheat can't tell evil from good. It's God's job to distinguish, and the weeds, the evil, will get burned up. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun. The end. The church is wheat, though. The kingdom. Everybody seems to think so. The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. We remember that in Matthew, the phrase kingdom of heaven is used to mean the way life is supposed to be, what the divine desires for us on earth in the material, lived lives of people. And where I got stuck, and honestly am still stuck, is on this. Why are there enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven? Why is the kingdom of heaven described exactly like a Roman householder or estate relationship with enslaved people and a master in the NRSV, a kurios in Greek, a lord, a position of power over others, a master, an enslaver of other humans? Nobody wants to talk about enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. So right now I'm going to make a confession to you. I've never heard a white person preach about enslavement or take on a biblical text about enslavement. I mean, really wrestle with it. Other than to say, maybe, we know there are these texts used to excuse enslavement in the modern era in the transatlantic slave of, uh, transatlantic trade of enslaved bodies between Europe and this continent. 
we know the Bible has been used that way and slavery is bad, so we aren't going to do that anymore. In fact, it's, a, it's used as a tool in the arguments about LGBTQ ordination, right? We don't use the Bible to excuse slavery anymore, so why use it to excuse homophobia? Which, you know, is fine and all, except we never actually talk about what enslavement actually was in the Roman Empire about what the heck enslavement is doing in our sacred text to begin with, and why parables about good and wicked enslaved people are put into Jesus' mouth. There are a bunch of those parables in Matthew, by the way, most often including physical violence against enslaved bodies. And we don't talk about it. Here's an example of what I mean. In his book, The Power of Parable, John Dominic Crossan, who I generally like as a scholar, has literally nothing to say about enslaved people in the parables he explores. Even in the chapter on parables in Matthew, in which he describes how Matthew as a gospel writer amps up the rhetorical violence coming out of Jesus' mouth, and in fact names this parable among those that demonstrate his point, he never names the acceptance of enslavement as a legitimate social structure as part of that violence. He never names violence against enslaved bodies as part of that amped up rhetorical violence. If, as he says, the power of Jesus' parables challenged and enabled his followers to co-create with God a world of justice and love, peace and nonviolence, then why are there enslaved people in these parables and why doesn't Cross and talk about that? Why do we not talk about this? That's not really my confession, though, or read, or whatever. My confession is what I haven't said, what I haven't done. I have never preached about this. I have never talked about this. Until sitting down with these texts this week, it had never occurred to me to find out just what enslavement in the Roman Empire looked like. I have been content and to repeat, to take at their word the ones who taught me that, oh, but slavery in ancient times was different, really more like servants, not like what it was in the U.S. Bodies weren't enslaved like property. No, it was different. I was taught that. I've repeated that. It was different. I didn't question that. I was content with that, comfortable. I did not want to know more. I recognize that in myself. Even in my own desire to really talk to you about weeds and herbs, I recognize that as a deflection from talking about the fact that there are enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm naming that for myself. For us. This is how it works, right? White supremacy teaching us to ignore what we see right in front of our face. What I also recognize that I want to do is I've wrestled and wrestled with myself and Jesus too about this text, is that I want to make it better. I want to fix it. I want to find the key that will make it so that Jesus is not telling us there are enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. I want to find the subversive resistancy counter-reading that will make this all better. 
that will make it not possible that Jesus means to say there are enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. So ironically, my resistance lesson this week is to examine my own resistance. My own resistance to sitting with the reality of enslavement in the Roman Empire and how it infects our sacred text. My own resistance to exploring how the casual acceptance of enslavement as a legitimate social order in the Gospels says something about my resistance to exploring how enslavement as a legitimate social order still impacts us today. I recognize my own attempts to minimize what my ancestors did, my own ancestors who enslaved people on this continent, how when I say, oh, but it was, it was just a few, how that's not any different than saying, oh, but slavery was different in Roman times. I confess this. I don't know what the penance for this would be, but I'm going to start with this. I'm not going to try to make this better. Not right now. I'm going to sit with the reality of enslavement in the Roman Empire and white and listening to this to do the same. Because it was not different. Everything you've heard about chattel enslavement on this U.S. continent? I want to take care here because what I don't want to do is create some kind of enslaved people trauma porn to get white folks to wake up because that's not okay. Still, I do need for us who are white Christian folks to understand that in Rome, enslaved people were considered property, not human. Enslaved people were bought and sold, parents torn from children, partners torn from partners. Enslaved people were put up on auction blocks, examined for sale, labeled for defects. Their bodies and sexualities were controlled and policed. They had no voice, no freedom, no rights. They were controlled through violence, the tools of which were no different than ours, including whips and the public spectacle of punishment by violent humiliation. I could go on with more specifics, but the point is this. It was not any different. And what has me so very unsettled and fighting with Jesus about is that Jesus knew this. Jesus would have known what enslavement looked like. He would have known it because Romans set up agricultural estates in Judea and used Jewish and other enslaved folks for the labor. Jewish enslaved bodies. He would have known it because about the time he was born, the Romans crucified 2,000 Judeans for rebellion and enslaved thousands more in Judea and Galilee, where Jesus was from, as a form of control. Be enslaved or be lynched. I cannot possibly believe that he would not have known this. Jews were conquered and reconquered by Rome, and in the conquering and reconquering, they were enslaved by Rome over and over. He had to know this. How could he not know this? So why? Why, Jesus? Why are there enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven? Why, Jesus, is the enslaver in this parable portrayed as some sort of wise character and the enslaved folks who would not have been much closer to the land, if not would have been much closer to the land, I mean, they would have been, and worked it themselves. 
Why are they so confusedly a common thing, having to deal with darnel seeds getting mixed up with wheat seeds? They would have known about that. And why, Jesus, do the enslaved people suddenly disappear when you explain your parable? Are they not good enough to have a role now? Not actually good enough to be in the real kingdom of heaven? What the heck is even going on here? Jesus, didn't you know that there was a Roman law against sowing darnel seeds into wheat fields and that rebels did this on purpose as an act of resistance, which is probably why there was a law to begin with? And apparently some Jewish folks got in trouble, as in they were executed, for doing exactly that? Ah, you see, now I want to take that bit, sowing the evil seeds of rebellion, and make it tell us that this parable must not mean what we think it means. It must mean something else, something else altogether. But I just don't know. I'm just not sure yet if I'm just trying to fix it, trying to make it better, when I shouldn't. Not yet. And anyway, even if that were true, that there's some kind of counter-reading that'll fix everything, I don't have any kind of clarity about what that might be. All I know is that something is very, very wrong. Jesus says there are enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. And I wonder what that says about the limits of our imagination that not even Jesus could imagine a world without enslavement. I wonder what that says about what we actually think is possible that not even Jesus could believe possible an economy without enslavement. I wonder what that says, that we don't even talk about it, about them, the enslaved people in the kingdom of heaven. So here's really my point with all this. I think for white folk our deep discomfort with and avoidance of the enslavement of other humans in the biblical text is directly tied to our deep discomfort with and avoidance of the reality of enslavement of other humans as one of the foundational and ongoing mechanisms of U.S. empire. We as white folk don't understand and perhaps don't want to understand the ways in which these systems of violent dehumanization traumatize generations of people in Rome and in the U.S. We as white folk don't understand and perhaps don't want to understand how that foundational mechanism of enslavement with its terrorizing partner indigenous genocide still function to this day. The mechanism of enslavement even after emancipation continued through Jim Crow laws and lynchings, continued through criminalization of petty behaviors and poverty and dissent, continues through the conveyor belts of mass incarceration and police patrolling, policing, punishing, executing, and yes, still enslaving black bodies. And we certainly don't want Jesus to have had anything to do with this. 
So if you're preaching this parable, I invite you to speak. I invite you to not try to fix it. We have to face this reality that lives in us, face the discussion. Just stay in that for a while. I invite you to spend some time on the website the Equal Justice Initiative created to document lynchings in the U.S. Think about lynchings and crucifixions as forms of social control and terror. Ask why in the world enslaved people who would have been targets of crucifixion show up in Jesus' parables. Ask why we don't talk about it. Sit in the discomfort of that. And I don't mean be paralyzed. I mean let yourself feel your feelings about it all as fully as you can as a catalyst for action. Whiteness doesn't want us to feel, especially about this, so let yourself feel it and use that knowledge you discover in your body for deeper action. That's actually where the good news will be, down there in the deep. That's your call to action this week. Fight with Jesus if you have to. I sure have been. Thanks, as always, for joining me today. Of course, the transcript this week will include resources at the end to support your actions. Let us know how it goes. We'd really love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be back next week with Nicola Torbett giving us a resistance word for the text for July 30th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. A huge, huge thanks to Colin Matson, who has been our amazing sound editor all these months since we began in January. We're building a sound editing crew now, and we are so appreciative of Colin for holding it down for us as we figured this podcasting thing out and shifted to this weekly format. So thank you. Thank you. As always, blessings to you and all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much.